honest questions with honest answers. This is Unfiltered, brought to you by the Emergency Medical Minute. Welcome back to Unfiltered. This is Nick Sippis. I'm privileged to have two excellent guests, longtime friends of Emergency Medical Minute, new friends of the Unfiltered podcast, Lisa Ravel and Josh Bloom, the faces of harm reduction in Denver, and they are going to be talking to us over the next <laughs> over the next hour or so about uh, the current state of harm reduction and looking forward to the future. So thank you guys very much for being here. We're thank very, you. very happy to have you. Very excited to hear your perspectives. Lisa, can you start with telling us just kind of a little bit of your background? We know who you are here in the office, but uh, to our listeners out there who have not yet had the, the pleasure of, of getting to know you, just kind of give us a little bit of background about who you are and what your current role is, and then Josh will go to you. Sure. My name is Lisa Rayville. I'm the Executive Director of the Harm Reduction Action Center. We're Colorado's largest public health agency that works specifically with people who inject drugs. We're located right across the street from the Colorado State Capitol, right where we should be. Uh, I've been, uh, it's been under my tyrannical reign for the last 10 years. Uh, we've been an agency for 17 years here in Denver. And uh, about 12 years ago, I was in AmeriCorps Vista at an aid service organization in California. At the same time, my husband and I were homeless for seven months. So about 12 years ago is when my activist voice awoke. Wow. Incredible story. We'll get more to that. Josh, can you update us on uh, your current relationship with Lisa and how <laughs> that was a Ooh. bit of a, a leading question. No, I'm just kidding. Um, and uh, your current role. Sure. Well, I think it's appropriate that you start with Lisa because all things start and end in harm reduction with Lisa Ravel. So uh, including my career in harm reduction, I was actually discovered by Lisa probably about five years ago now. Um, hadn't actually uh, not even really heard about naloxone being used in a harm reduction um, model until I was filled in by people who were doing Lisa's bidding at Denver Health. I'm a primary care uh, general internist employed at Denver Health and Hospital Authority. That's uh, Denver's big public institution. I um, run one of the HIV primary care clinics, uh, the HIV primary care clinic, I should say, at Denver Health. I also do addiction medicine and board certified in addiction medicine um, it's in Denver Health's outpatient behavioral health services department. And I serve uh, as the co-chair of the provider education work group at the Colorado Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention. Uh, Lisa brought me along to that organization as well when we uh, started and co-chaired the Harm Reduction Work Group for several years. He's also on my board of directors. I see. I see. Your careers are intertwined. Coming out from two very different We're backgrounds and perspectives. That's right. We're the two best friends. Best friend. Anyone. <laughs> We've had a road trip together. You're my so. best friend. Yeah. <laughs> Lisa, I'd love to hear more about your background. I think our listeners are going to be fascinated about how you got into this. You mentioned your husband and your experiences uh, being homeless. And, and, and then I know you also have some experience being in a homeless shelter overnight, being kind of um, uh, being a, a staff member there. Mm -hmm. and, and how did you start with this? And how has that kind of led you to where you are today? Sure. So I graduated from uh, DePaul University wanting to do Peace Corps. And then September 11th happened. And I remember September 11th, nobody knew what was going on in the world. So I moved out to Netherlands here and then moved around a little bit and became uh, was able to do a domestic Peace Corps experience such as AmeriCorps. And uh, during that time, during seven months of the year, uh, they wouldn't. Uh, the homeless coalition of Monterey County wouldn't let let us live in the housing because I had a husband and a dog, which I really felt like was my cross to bear. Uh, so we lived in our vehicle in parking lots, uh, and I'd never felt so unsafe in my entire life. Um, and when you're unhoused, you're busy. You're all over town, showering one place, uh, getting your mail somewhere else, making sure that you park so the cops or someone sketchy doesn't get to you, but you don't want to make sure that you park too far that the cops or someone sketchy can't get to you. Um, so. I just was able to, you know, not stop and push forward. And so uh, after that, I was the campaign manager for a woman who ran for county supervisor in Monterey County who won, who's still in that position and who's amazing and progressive and fabulous. So she was an easy sell. And then the overnight homeless shelter, uh, there was only one emergency women's shelter in Salinas, California, and they would have one person work overnight. And uh, I would do that sometimes. And I just... Uh, wasn't able to stop. So it all kind of culminated this gig. I've been at the Harm Reduction Action Center for the last 10 and a half years. What do you think it is that drew you to this in the first place? I, know, I understand your experience. I'm a Virgo. That. <laughs> it's true. She really is. <laughs> She's such a I'm dead inside. But I'm also a server, you know. I, my par I was raised by religious Republicans, and um, in the church it was all about service. And 
treating people with kindness and dignity. And that's what I really connected with. And that's what I've been able to do. So I need the direct service. So I can't imagine being an executive director anywhere else where I'd be in the back office and looking over the financials and stuff like that. I have the ability to work uh, on the floor with 150 to 180 people per morning being proactive about their health and providing that direct resource. So then I can, you know, make sure the streets influence the policies at the state capitol or with Denver City Council or do technical assistance with unlikely or simply likely allies such as law enforcement, neighborhood associations, healthcare providers, parole probation. Yep. And we're going to get to some of that too. Josh, her talking about service and a focus on service reminds me of the services you do for your community. It sounds like that likely kind of ties you two, binds you two together. I'm going to ask you the same kind of question in that what drew you to this work to begin with, with a different background, but yet similar vision and goals as, as Lisa. Yeah, I, th- I think the background, I think actually the service picks us. We don't pick it. We just become more like ourselves as we get older. And, and so uh, in addition to doing work with HIV in primary care, I also do HIV care and transgender care in the Denver City and County Jails, uh, along with um, my addiction practice. And you realize these are all sort of um, different facets of the same kinds of issues. It's all the same social determinants of health. It's all people who uh, maybe suffered childhood trauma and have had lots of disadvantages. And you wind up seeing that there's a need um, for those populations, no matter how they manifest, whether that's in someone who takes, um, who engages in risky sexual behaviors or someone else who takes drugs to be comforted um, so that they can feel like they have a sense of belonging. It's all, it's all just different facets of the same population. But um, like Lisa, I I think I'm a, I'm a direct service person. Um, I'm not, uh, even though I'm in a somewhat academic role, my interest is not in publication or even administration really is in getting into it with people. That's awesome. And do you, Consider yourself a teacher, Josh? Uh, I, I'm a student much more than a teacher. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm definitely a teacher. I mean, we have to teach in an actual roles. And right. it seems like this is an area of such interest right now. You know, addiction is hot right now. It's our, it's our 10 minutes of fame. And so everybody wants to do an addiction medicine rotation. Mm-hmm. And there's a mm-hmm. lot of interest in HIV primary care. So we wind up having a lot of residents and students come through and even come through the jails to see what it's like to provide care sure. to people in the, in the jails. Um, but it's not rocket science. There's actually not a lot of teach, mostly what... Um, the, doing the care involves is actually is um, shutting up and listening most of the time, bearing witness to people, and then treating them radically like they're just human beings. <laughs> it's what a radical concept mm-hmm. indeed. It's most of it. <laughs> you don't even need med school, really. You can just <laughs> nod a lot and say, how does it make you feel? And then you're basically, you know. <laughs> Tell me more about that yeah, open-ended question. Totally. I've seen nine seasons of Grey's Anatomy, so I pe- feel like I'm practically year, a colleague year of three, Josh Year right. three and a half. You're basically doing away yeah. rotations as a fourth-year medical yeah. student. I think point. the thing you learn, too, as a primary care internist is that you think you're going to go into internal medicine because you're going to do a lot of hard medicine and treat people's, you know, renal tubular acidosis and things like that. And really what primary care amounts to is a whole lot of psychological burden. So mm-hmm. when people come in and their diabetes isn't managed, is it really because you didn't tweak the medicines correctly or they were so hard to manage or it was the drug side effects or interactions and the pharmacokinetics? No, it's it's that, you know, their son's in jail, so they don't have time to think about picking up their medicines right. or it's or it's issues around feeling, do they feel self-worth enough to feel worthy of controlling their diabetes? So really, as a primary care internist, you wind up becoming an untrained psychologist. Sure. And that's really what you spend your By time necessity, doing. absolutely. By necessity. And yep. you realize like, hey, wouldn't it have been great if I'd learned that in the front end? So mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of my training of others is to say, hey, don't forget about the psychologic stuff. You know, you can't separate out the mind and the body and take your time to learn this shit because it's really important. That's powerful. Listen to that, listeners. That is uh, that is powerful, very insightful perspective about uh, the true practice of medicine. You know, you want to call it art and science, but they're really intertwined and uh, you can't separate the mind from the body. It's absolutely true. How do we take advantage of all that kind of positive forward momentum? But this is, addiction medicine is in the limelight. Totally. It is... This is its moment in the sun. It's a, it's it's unfortunate that of the, the reasons that it's 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 gotten that way. It's unfortunate that we've gotten ourselves to that position. But how do we take advantage of that? And how do you see that in your kind of day to day practice? Well, first of all, you know, there's all this interest in the opioid epidemic. But Lisa and I both know that that's just like kind of the tip of the iceberg. And as Lisa's seeing, and she'll talk more about, I'm yep. certain, um, it's it's all about lots of substances. You know, we have an incredibly substance abusing, avid society, mm-hmm. um, which comes from a lot of uh, issues. Um, but I think the interest in the opioid epidemic is our chance to say, hey, let, maybe we can build a system that treats people of with all different, yeah. not only substance use disorders, but also mental health 
disorders, all sorts of other um, social issues that um, impact them and social determinants of health. Because really what medicine is being asked to do right now with the addiction epidemic is re-engineer from reverse um, a social support network, whereas other you know uh, economically developed countries already have social support systems to support people who um, maybe are impacted by food insecurity, let's say, or, or joblessness. Uh, we are famously independent in the United States, and um, what happens is people present to medicine clinics a lot of times, or to yep. Lisa, with tremendous social needs, and we're being asked to address that from the medicine side, which mm -hmm. is a really inefficient way to do that. So building up that whole structure around that and making it, of course, as we say, substance agnostic is is what we need to be doing now while there's interest in this in this field until like the public moves on to the next shiny object. <laughs> which hopefully it won't, surely. I think we still have hopefully some burning star left. Lisa, can you add to that? I mean, what about what Josh has said and how, how we could potentially use the opioid epi epidemic as a hook to get uh, more folks on board with a broader substance abuse awareness? Sure. And what I call it is an overdose epidemic. Yeah. Right? And so we have stimulant overdoses are up in the state of Colorado, which is cocaine, crack, and meth. Yep. And a lot of people who use stimulants don't know that they can overdose on stimulants. So we want to make sure folks have for correct factual health information out there. And so we've definitely, in, over the years, been able to shift it out of the criminal justice system, at least locally. Law enforcement is shifting more to public health than some healthcare providers. So we, it's up to us to not only um, engage with people who use drugs in a harm reduction model, but also we have to engage with service providers and decision makers in a harm reduction model, meeting them where they're at and making sure we can walk together for a safer, a healthier them. And, you know, we have, you know, people don't talk a lot about benzos. Benzos can be an issue for a lot of folks and put in benzo blackouts or a higher risk of overdosing. Mm -hmm. And I know we can do better. Absolutely. And our, you know, our listener, Crew is kind of a diverse group. We have uh, pre-hospital providers, we have paramedics, med students, nurses, docs, folks from across the spectrum. And this is a topic that I think involves everyone. It's kind of an all-hands-on-deck approach, right? And from from our perspective and as healthcare providers, um, interacting and in integrating with the existing you know, infrastructure that's, mm -hmm. that's out there. Um, and I, I appreciate your guys' perspective. I, I do have a kind of interesting question for you. Can you each tell me who the most unlikely ally that you've either had or currently have in your work, because a lot of this stuff can follow along political lines, right? It can follow along certain divisive uh, ways that we segregate ourselves. Uh, so who are folks who you've worked with that you maybe five or 10 years ago would have never guessed that you'd be working with? Cops. <laughs> I knew she was going to say that. What a and very, even, very strange time it is. And even the head cop for the state of Colorado, who wound up being an incredibly stalwart ally, Cynthia Kaufman, who... Uh, like you said, across the aisle maybe from where a lot of people would sit on, on harm reduction and social justice issues, mm -hmm. but um, has been an incredible supporter of harm reduction work across the state. And supervised use sites. Yep. Uh, I think Narcan became the gateway drug for a lot of law enforcement. Sure. We could talk about that people shouldn't have to die of preventable opioid overdose deaths. Then we talk about how we have black tar heroin in Colorado, which is difficult to snort and expensive to smoke, so you almost have to exclusively inject it. So we talk about people injecting. We want to reduce needle stick injuries in law enforcement. Law enforcement knows they can't arrest their way out of the overdose epidemic, mm -hmm. or they would have already done so. They've been very public about that. So they're really shifting more to public health with lead, law enforcement-assisted diversion, which diverts low-level drug users and sex workers to services and not incarceration. I get more referrals to my program from cops than I do from docs. That's strange. Ouch. But, but we're all... <laughs> no, no, it's a fair that's point. That's why I'm here. No, that's a fair point. It's, that's right. It is absolutely appropriate. Keep yeah. going. And so it's been uh, kind of an interesting time for us to be on the front lines together in the midst of this overdose epidemic. Emergency departments, law enforcement, and syringe access programs are working together in a way we just simply haven't before. And so we can agree to disagree on a lot of stuff, and we don't talk about that. But what we are all invested in is the health and safety of our community. Right. Now, we might go about that a little differently, but now it's all hands on deck. And so I think that um, that's been particularly powerful because we, you know, law enforcement implements the law. If we don't like the law, then we change the law, and then it's up to them to do the implementation. Right. But then really it's up to us to make sure that they're implementing it properly. Uh, so we've passed seven pieces of statewide legislation in the last 10 years in Colorado, four to reduce the harms associated with overdose, and then three to reduce the harms associated with syringe criminalization. And it's starting to repair some of those relationships mm -hmm. with law enforcement and people who inject drugs on the streets. And that's really where we're, what we're trying to do. Got it. Tell me about your approach to safe injection sites. How did you bring this up and how did you get buy-in and how, what kind of roadblocks did you hit? Josh, you're welcome to jump into. And, uh, but I, I'm curious, I think that is a particularly hot topic amongst other 
numerous hot topics, but uh, tell me more about that. Sure. So in January of 2017, I lost seven participants in a two-week period, six to overdose. And that's a lot for us. So we had been kind of vacillating a little bit beforehand, and I went to my board of directors, and I said, we got to push forward, and they unanimously agreed. In February of 2017, we lost somebody to a drug overdose deaths in the Denver Public Library. So then we were able to start having that conversation. So it's been incredibly business-friendly, as you can imagine. We have injection sites all over town. They're just simply not supervised. <laughs> and one of the last unlocked places in town people can inject now are hospital campuses. So even hospital campuses have drug overdose deaths that happen. Right. Um, so we have the support of businesses and churches and medical societies, Colorado Medical Society and Denver Medical Society, treatment, recovery, moms, people who use drugs. Because the number one substance use treatment requirement for admission in Denver, the state of Colorado, and the United States is people have to be alive. So we're pushing forward for a healthier and safer folks today because dead drug users do not have the opportunity for recovery. And so when people are alive, there's hope. So when people die, there's no hope. So we've got to keep people alive to see a sun um, sunrise tomorrow morning. So it's not, I mean, we have them. I want them. It would simply be a program arm of an already flourishing syringe access program. Um, it reduces the injection-related diseases, such as HIV and hepatitis C, reduces skin tissue infection, promotes proper disposal, reduces public injecting, promotes public safety, and inf- promotes linkage to treatment as well. Absolutely, because they're alive. That's a requirement. Just to tag on that, and and you know, you mentioned something a little bit before about how. Um, most of your referrals, or you get more referrals from cops than you do from medicine, and that and that's um, that's a fascinating statistic. It's also I, I want to talk about how medicine's a little late to this game, to the harm reduction game, a mm-hmm. little bit, if I if I can. I would um, love that. Thank please you. do. Particularly <laughs> at Nick, and and I know I think ERs, ER physicians, emergency department physicians are a little more aware of this, but um, there's some major specialties, particularly in the inpatient hospital world, like hospitalists infectious disease doctors and pulmonary critical care doctors for whom harm reduction is, is sort of a non-existent issue and mm-hmm. we really have to get the word out. So, right. Right. for example, I, I went and spoke to some pulmonary critical care doctors and um, uh, one of them mentioned, oh, about 50% of the people that we see in our ICU are there with opioid overdoses after the weekend. And I say, well, how many of those get some education when they um, are no longer on the blower on um, how to inject safely, how to make sure you don't inject alone, how to do a tester shot, how to make sure you um, save a vein for a hospital stay? You know, s- signs that you would, signs that you care about the person's well-being, that you're trying to reduce their harms when they leave the hospital. And the answer was never. Crickets. No crickets. Absolute <laughs> crickets. And that same approach uh, applies to the infectious disease doctors. Acted asked uh, other ones who were, you know, we have patients who are in the hospital with skin and soft tissue infections, as Lisa pointed out, or they're on six weeks of IV antibiotics for endocarditis uh, treatment, and how often do those folks get any education around vein care and infection prevention for when they inject, not if they do, because of course, you know, uh, and the answer is never, um, because I think we assume in as physicians in the inpatient side, they're never going to use again as soon as they leave here because they've had this bad complication, so they're obviously going to be cured right. of their addiction, yep. and we just don't take a real-world approach at all, and additionally, and, and I know Lisa will talk, uh, Lisa will talk about the the real perils of being an injection drug user who's hospitalized and then the inpatient stay for a while, because I know she has something to say about that. But um, it, it sends it sends a message that I'm an ally as opposed to I'm uh, I'm here as your cop to make sure that you don't uh, do the wrong thing mm-hmm. when you bring up these harm reduction approaches and people actually see the patient actually see you're treating him or her like a human being. And again, addressing real world issues, not simply this ivory tower. Well, you're never going to use again, are you? So, Lisa, I don't know if you want to pipe in on what you've heard from your uh, clients around sure. their inpatient hospital stays. And I think it gets to tough. That. No, I'd love to hear that. Is this your podcast now? Sorry. No, he, sorry no I'm happy to surrender Nick. control. Yeah, this is... Kickback, Nick. <laughs> I'm enjoying this. Uh, yeah. Just a the, listener. Yeah, the problem... Well, oh, there's so many problems. So... So a lot of times it's very difficult to get them to go to the emergency department in general. People who healthcare providers and people who inject drugs have a very tumultuous relationship. Sure do. However, there's no bigger health nerds in the world than healthcare providers and people who inject drugs. You guys would love each other. Endocarditis, necrotizing fasciitis. It's very difficult to protect yourself if you don't know how you acquire something. So they thirst for factual health mm-hmm. information. Oftentimes I get them into the emergency department and their abscess is lanced without anesthesia because if it hurts enough, you'll stop doing drugs. Well, actually, all that does is the next time they have an abscess, they're lancing it in my bathroom, at my place, or underneath a bridge. 
Yes, I've seen nine seasons of Grey's Anatomy. I also suffer from the disease of vasovagal. Wounds are my trigger. So I have to side-eye your wound to see if I can go ahead and bandage you up. That's a problem. Mm-hmm. Also, when I get them into the emergency department, they're usually gone up, popped upstairs because they should have been there, you know, three weeks prior. Right. And if they're a known heroin or opioid user, they're not kept out of withdrawal. I'm not asking any healthcare provider to get anybody high, but they certainly need to be kept out of withdrawal because if one of two things is going to happen. One is they're going to call their friend and have their friend bring them in heroin yep. so they can be kept well, so they can prioritize their health needs. I think we have a lot of inpatient docs who can identify with or that. Or yep. two, they're going to leave AMA against yep. medical advice, and then you're branded a problem patient. Right. And, and, and uh, you know, again, a huge blind spot for us who do who practice medicine in the hospital is not understanding that opioid deficit that people come in with. So, you know, when that heroin user who hasn't used in three or four hours hits the door, they are already in a little bit of withdrawal, and they also have their tolerance to with to deal with. So if you're talking about treating someone or pre-treating, one, uh, pre, pre-treating someone before a procedure, you know, you might normally give someone 10 milligrams of oxycodone, let's say, before you're going to treat them. Well, this person already has an opioid deficit of 40 milligrams of oxycodone or the equivalent. So you better or be giving them a lot more medicine in order to get them any analgesia than a lot less because you think you're going to teach them a lesson. Mm. And don't you want them quiet? I mean, <laughs> when people are in withdrawal, they're fussy. I mean, you've got Narcan, but that's not the problem there, right? And so then, then the things really start off really terribly with the nurses, and then the doctors come in every once in a while, and and everything starts off really terribly. So what happens is, is a lot of times they leave AMA against medical advice, and come to my place, and they're like, I tried. I'm like, I know you did. And so it doesn't mean it wrapped up all of their health issues. Mm-hmm. It means now I'm going to have them present to another hospital because I'm not going to send them back to the same hospital. Right. And so that's going to be more costly to all sorts of folks, uh, especially taxpayers. And so if you're really interested in um, cost effectiveness, it's treating people that first time. Comprehensively. Yes. Yeah. Then uh, being like, fine, I guess you know everything. Well, they're going. it's not like it wrapped everything up. And, and from a standpoint of... From, from physician standpoint, it's that team-based approach, right? You may not feel comfortable giving that person a big slug of opioids, but maybe you have an enlightened anesthesiologist who can do a nerve block or something else to at least make that person more comfortable for the Lansing procedure, and who also understands opioid tolerance and opioid deficit and is willing to you know, pull out the big guns to make that person comfortable. And then you're you working with your consultants and as a care team to take care of that person. Similarly, you know, make sure you have a really good relationship with your infectious disease clinician who really is the enlightened one who understands the nature of these diseases, who's willing to do some education. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Talk about, I think this ties right in with initiating medication-assisted therapy with patients, uh, particularly in the acute setting. Once we have them, from our perspective, in the emergency department, uh, you know, once we have them in the department, instead of, like you said, taking an antagonistic or adversarial approach, instead saying, well, can we get you on a more sustainable, long-term buprenorphine regimen. Um, and that's something that we're starting now here at Swedish, but also I know is starting to become more common in the Denver area. Can you kind of comment on what, this is a question to either, uh, can you comment on currently what the kind of state of that is and where it might be going? Well, I think there's certainly a ton of interest in this because you know, Nick, like, like Lisa's saying, people in withdrawal are fussy. And uh, (laughs) people who use drugs can be really at their wits end and and incredibly difficult. So this is a win-win. If you take someone who is uh, in the throes of heroin use disorder and also in withdrawal, and you can, in the emergency department, give them medication that makes them feel good, keeps them quiet, which, you know, makes Lisa happy too, because she likes quiet uh, clients as well, Um, then, and give them a plan for ongoing treatment that's going to help stabilize their brain, allow them to regain some of the function that they've lost, and and start to move on the road towards recovery. I mean, that's a total win for your emergency department as Absolutely. well as the patient. So this is not a, hopefully it's not a hard sell at this point to emergency doctors, but it's it's something that is certainly expanding statewide. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, and I don't think it's a hard sell. I think there's still continued work to kind of adjust the mindset of an, you know, I think the resistance comes from people thinking they're enabling or that they're no, further destructive. Based. Right. I think they're, you know, I think my impression is that resistance comes from thinking that we're just perpetuating a problem and that we're, you know, I don't think people. How's under- that going for you? I know, right? How has that been going for <laughs> generations? I mean, right? Um, so, but I think that that's the, pri- I think that's kind of primarily the resistance. So we have treatment on demand 24-7 at Denver Health and we've induced over 300, I, I can't give you an exact number, it's oh, well over 300 people have been induced onto buprenorphine in the yep. emergency department. We also have 24-7 social workers who will do a full biopsychosocial intake so that person can just slot in the next day into treatment. And we have well over 70% retention rate in people yep. showing up the next day for their follow-up appointments. So these are people, as Lisa said, who the, the fallacy is that they don't care about 
their health. They do care deeply about their health. They People do. have to come to treatment at different times. They may be ready at different times. There may be a bunch of false starts. You know, it, you know, someone likened it to sort of like buying a car. When you go on the car lot, you know, the first time you go, you kick the tires. Then you you see the salesman coming. You run away. You know, you're not going there to plunk down your money the first time. You might have to be exposed to it a couple times. Think about it a little bit. This is a big decision. You're talking about people leaving their main comfort mechanism, right? Their, their coping main mechanism, coping had for skill decades. that has worked for them for all that time. And you're talking about asking them to leave it behind. That's going to create a lot of ambivalence. But when they're finally ready to get them into treatment, when they're ready at that moment is huge, important, and we should all be doing it in every emergency department across yeah, the state. I think our docs have found it very fulfilling. I mean, honestly, I think I think we see it as part of this comprehensive approach, like we've discussed. And you mentioned you know, it, it involves integration with outpatient resources. You know, from you know, we have a family medicine clinic on campus who has said we're willing to take these folks within 24 hours, 48 hours, and we're willing to ride with them going forward. And I think that that integrated approach is is essential. Uh, and I think that working with resource, resources like Lisa's, as I said, resources, which is yeah. a, I liked it. that is a great like term. A great you can have that one for free. That might be the only thing that you get from me on this, as opposed to me learning from you. But, um, you know, I think that you, you know, working with resources such as yours and resources. You, yeah, mm -hmm. at least working with extensive resources, write that down. Nick. Uh, <laughs> That's a real dream boat over here. It's, uh, he's easy on the eyes. I know. However, what I would like to jump in, uh, I think it's a very tall ask to ask unhoused folks to be sober. There's a lot of crisis sure. management that happens on the streets. So in our community, housing is substance use treatment. So we can get people onto Suboxone, which feels really great. Oftentimes, they don't want to do the therapy that goes along with that because it's unsafe for them to bring that up on the streets or in and out of incarceration. Mm. So when you hear about people maybe purchasing Suboxone on the streets, they're purchasing treatment and not purchasing heroin. Right. But they also don't have to um, sometimes get the DMV customer service uh, that some of the clinics can provide or have to bring up other stuff where simply unsafe for them to bring that up at this time. Mm. So we, we see that a lot. I want to expand on that a little bit because, you know, as addiction treatment, particularly as it, as it um, expands, as we expand access to medications to treatment on the backs of emergency department physicians, emergency physicians, and um, and primary care, this is sort of moving out of what I would say is specialty care into, into general care, into primary care. And, you know, specialty care is, a, is it's always things that are limited resource where it's my way or the highway. You have to follow very strict rules, mm -hmm. and it's an all-or-nothing kind of approach. And when this was the purview of addiction psychiatry and there were so few of them, it was, look, you're going to be immediately absent from all substances or you're going to get discharged from care because there's plenty of other people who need treatment. When it comes to primary care, look, we are experts at managing chronic relapsing diseases that right. people don't necessarily or have variable levels of motivation to treat, right? And so, Do you mean to suggest that you don't kick someone out of your clinic immediately if they don't make dietary changes related to their diabetes? Immediately. If they don't lose 40 <laughs> pounds and start exercising an hour a day like Don Stater, then they get kicked out of my class. <laughs> oh, that Don there Stater. There Shout out to Don no. Stater. Oh, and Don Stater is the new Josh Bloom. You're so far beyond me. So, uh, so, but but really, so we're good at this. So it's a really a harm reduction approach, right? It really is the the movement from um, an absence based approach also to a harm reduction approach. And suddenly, it's look: are they better off on the buprenorphine, um, even if they're using other substances, uh, than when they weren't on buprenorphine? Are they better off just taking the buprenorphine, even if it's not coming with the counseling? Are they better off um, just? Uh, um, coming to most of their clinic visits and maybe taking most of their medicines, even if a few of them are trickling out and being diverted, even as Lisa says, onto the street, since most of those are being used actually to treat withdrawal of mm -hmm. other individuals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The answer is usually yes. And so Annals published a, a really nice article in 2018, basically saying, you probably read this that. is, yeah, <laughs> mm -hmm. this is, this is the future of buprenorphine really yep. is a harm reduction approach. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I also read JAMA. So I know I'm all impressed. That. Lisa yeah. reads Thank all you. of the journals, all the publications. Thank you. <laughs> I'm like, what are the biggest Oh, you're about areas. to say something inappropriate, uh, huh? I was just going to talk about Sarah Palin reading all the newspapers. Oh. <laughs> what are the biggest areas of resistance that you see currently? Where, where would you say your biggest headaches come from in terms of people pushing back about your efforts? You know, the haters don't really come to my face anymore. Uh, I do a lot of tours at our place, too, so it's important because there's no good media representation of syringe access programs. Part of people think they're dark and dingy houses with toddlers running around or something like that. Syringe access programs have a lot of life that are happening in there. So we do a lot of tours for folks to come in to see what we are and what we aren't and trying to push forward with... Um, especially with supervised use sites, harm reduction increases public safety. And I think what maybe hurt my feelings the most earlier this year was there was a lot of misinformation that went out that what we're trying to push forward with is anti-public safety. 
we, we're invested in the health and safety of the community in which we serve, and so are our participants, because we're the one safe space in the entire world. They can talk realistically about their drug use. So they don't buy, sell, and use within our area, because if we get kicked out for neighbor drama, we'll have nowhere to go, right? So... You know, we have good relationships with Colorado State Patrol. We have great relationships with Denver Police Department. We're into good neighbor agreements. I'm the 200 block block captain for the Colfax Business Improvement District because I can assure you Colfax Avenue does not run itself. So we, we are just public health in your community. And harm reduction has been around since the late 80s right. in the United States. Only recently have people found us relevant. And so I think, you know, for a long time, we didn't really have to do much with healthcare providers or law enforcement or anybody else because nobody was even paying attention to us and just assuming that if stigma, shame, and incarceration worked with drug use, they'd have wrapped it up years ago. But here we are, still here, pushing forward for a healthier and safer community. And sometimes it's like, you're with us or you're against us. Join the movement. We can do this. But also, we'll harm reduction people and meet them where they're at. Um, and public safety is, is number one for us. I want to talk just for a second about, though, sometimes talking to people from different backgrounds. Um, this can all be really jarring. It can be really, it's a lot of new information. It can feel really different and really uncomfortable for people. And you just have to give them time. You mm -hmm. have to right. really have to validate and, and listen a lot. Um, a, a book that influenced me a lot is one called The Righteous Mind by this guy, Jonathan Haidt, who talked about the way different people morally reason. Mm -hmm. And and uh, people who are of a more conservative bend tend to use um, some other realms that we don't necessarily think of, I think, in some of us who are more of a get-or-done sort of harm reduction approach. And, and those include things like sanctity. Um, and it can be really hard to just sort of stomach for some people, um, the way that Lisa Vasovagels with Seeing Wound, some people feeling like someone injecting a needle into their arm can be can be very um, difficult for people to just think about. It can feel like it uh, it uh, disrupts the sanctity of, of a human body and that sure. that's something that is really repugnant to them, frankly. And it takes them a while on, a on a level on a level that is really not, um, not an intellectual level. Um, and I think you have to give people time to come around to that, to see the health benefits. So their initial reaction, their initial gut reaction may be really uh, that they abhor um, uh, the, the way we're this approach to, mm -hmm. to drug users. But if you give them time, if you give the cop time to see the people who are really suffering from the uh, epidemic or see the grieving mother after a child dies or things like that, you can eventually come around. But we, it, it just takes time to mm -hmm. move the needle in, in people's moral reasoning. Mm -hmm. True. That's powerful. That's powerful. Oh, like number two. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> no, it really is. I think, I think... It's uh, a lot of listening. Listening is the key, right? right? It's what we do in medicine. You sit there, you listen, you bear witness. You cannot try to convince someone to believe what they don't believe in their gut. Mm -hmm. You just say, that's really valid, and then you counter with some information, and you give it time to sit and let them come, come along at their own pace. Mm -hmm. Which well, is exhausting. It is. It's one person by one person. It is. I think that's what's most frustrating about the movement, too. It is very difficult to, I mean, once in a great while, you can get in front of a lot of people, but it's really one-on-one. -on -one. They have to be able to ask questions. The biggest question, the number one question I always get every time I present is, do you refer to treatment? Fuck yeah, I refer to treatment. Let's talk about what treatment looks like for people. Let's talk about what relapse is a part of recovery for so many folks too. Mm -hmm. Like, let's talk about how we don't really have much treatment for stimulant users. Let's talk about inpatient feels like a story of hope at this time and medical detox feels like a story of hope. Let's talk about, you know, when folks are like, I don't know, I guess I just failed treatment. And it's like, no, treatment failed you. Let's talk about what it looks like for a healthier and safer you today and how can I support you? And so, you know, I'm a fan obviously, of treatment, but also that's not going to be the end-all, be-all for everybody. Success is going to look very different. Some people, it's going to be flourishing and living life of recovery. Some people, it's going to be using an alcohol pad so they don't go into the emergency department anymore with skin tissue infections. That's going to be a win. That's going to be a high five. And then you can build on those changes. You can build on positive incremental changes instead of like, oh, you did that wrong and this wrong and I don't know. Like, well, how are, we, how are you supposed to flourish that way? So harm reduction means we're rooting for you. And so we get excited. I got most spirited in high school, so it's kind of my thing. Um, but it's like, <laughs> this is exciting, yes. Like I was just talking to somebody today who got uh, into housing. He's on methadone. He um, is really in just a great place in his life. And he's just like, I can't believe this. This is so great. And I was like, you deserve this. You deserve safety. And I think a lot of what people don't have is safety. 
And so it's, it's talking about what does safety look like to you today? And when I'm talking to folks who are like, oh, I wish everybody was in treatment. Well, that's a very magical world. And also in a very magical world, there'd be no drugs. But we live here. Come with me here and see some sort of action item. Any positive change that can happen today feels like success and feels like a win. So join us. That's huge. I, I want to um, echo what you said. First of all, you were the most spirited in high school. For, mm-hmm. uh, well, I got it in like you, sophomore year. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say, were you the mascot? Did you dress Wait, up what like happened a dog? junior no. and senior year? Well, I mean, they spirited. can't give it to me the whole time. Thank you for asking. No one ever asks. So um, I was on the volleyball team, and oh, it must have been freshman year, and uh, I got most spirited. I'm a really loud woo girl and clapper, mm, nice. uh, and really pumped for the gals. And in, in the eighth grade, I thought I was going to get it, and I didn't get it. And only Who got be- it? Do you remember? Fucking Rachel McNeil. I knew you'd remember. Jeez. Fucking Rachel. Hold a grudge for if Rachel yeah. McNeil's a visitor or a listener to the podcast, Dr. Come McNeil. Vi- come visit in. Yeah. Uh, we'll smooth this out. Yeah. Well, and I felt terrible for the church, uh, not the church, the uh, secretary of the school, because only people that won awards got invited. But I just kept going back every day being like, is my invitation here? And finally, the secretary to be like, I don't think you're winning an mm. award. Mm. Oh. Would you consider that a formative experience? In Can you believe <laughs> it? She hardly remembers it I at know. all. Also, this other gal to turn the entire fifth grade class against me. I won't get into that, but thanks for being here, everybody. Stay tuned. That's for the next podcast. That's right. I'm trying to remember what you were talking about before. I don't either. I don't know. know. I know. I was going to talk about just so (laughs) that really perfection being the enemy of good, you know, and that in medicine, we're really, we're not that great at giving people incremental uh, positive feedback. We want them to quit smoking, right? So the the quitting smoking is great. You quit smoking. That's fantastic. Good for you. But when the person comes in and says, you know, I was smoking two packs a day and now I'm smoking, uh, you know, one and a half, we tend to be a lot more tepid in our Chart still says you're a cigarette tobacco yeah, user. We're so binary so. in medicine, and we expect perfection. And to Lisa's point, and this is also the concept of dolphin training. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this. There was a great New York Times article about how they train dolphins to do these super complex steps. You don't wait till the dolphin swims across the, the pool, picks up the ball, swims it back the other side, and then puts it through the hoop. They can't learn it that way. You have to break it down to individual steps. So as soon as the dolphin makes the move towards the ball, you reward the dolphin. Then when they get that figured out, they have to get the ball. Then you reward them when they pick up the ball. Then you reward them when they bring it back. Then you finally reward them. So you reward them every step of the way. And we don't do that very, very well with our treatment of disease or particularly with substance use disorder. We don't give people reward. I saw a patient just on Tuesday who came back in um, despite the fact that his urine toxicology didn't have the buprenorphine I was prescribing in it but had lots of other opioids and other drugs in it as well. It would be very easy to say, what the heck are you doing here? You know, I'm, I'm discharging you from care. Mm-hmm. He was simply psyched that he came back. Right. And, and I had to say, yeah, you came back despite the fact that your roommate has endless quantities of oxycodone mm-hmm. tablets that he's sharing with you. How, how could someone possibly be expected to be sober when you're living with someone who's supplying you with drugs and, and you can't get out of that milieu? The fact that he came back and was motivated to stay engaged in treatment, I just had to celebrate that because really that's, that's a win that he was there. And so, and we're we have to remember that both with our child rearing, with our with our spouses, I was just with our say, patients, this, it really works. You give them. This is why my wife back. pats me on the back for bringing the laundry down and putting it in front of the washing machine, which is a step <laughs> in the right direction. That's exactly granted. Right. I still have to wash it, dry it, fold it, and put it away. But like you know, she does on a regular. But. The article, I appreciate that, and I, that's why that makes me feel good. I guess it that's should. where that comes she from. She knows what she's doing. She, she is way ahead of me. She's a public health person, and mm. so the woman who wrote the article though. in the New York Times, she starts trying it on her husband. She's like, "Hey, if this works <laughs> for dolphins, it's got to work." And her husband always <laughs> leaves his dirty laundry on the floor in their bedroom, and so it wasn't even that he made it to the laundry basket. Yeah. When he made it closer to the laundry basket, Correct. she rewarded him, and pretty soon, there's the underwear in the laundry basket instead of on the floor. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so just throw me a sardine. I'll be thrilled. <laughs> so tell me what this looks like. Ideally, you know, we have it's, there's fits and stops and starts, and there's you know, but the, ideally, like the stock market, stock market, we're moving up and to the right. Right. Tell me what this looks like ideally in one year, two years, five years. You pick the time frame of your choosing, but at least you can start. Tell me what if you could design. If you could tell me what you wanted it to look like, given where we're at now, what would you? How would you see that? What I want Denver to look like? Yeah, or... we'll start with Denver. Okay. You can fix, you know, I'm, I, I'm confident you two can fix the whole country, but that we'll, we'll post on that to the next to the next podcast and start local. Can't even fix myself or Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> you definitely can't fix me. Uh, well, for me in Denver, it'll be continuing to engage uh, people who inject drugs for healthier and safer them. What I really want and need is a supervised use site. If I could chip away at two public overdose deaths a, a year, that would feel like a win. Uh, 
if it saves just one person's life, that would be a win. And if it was your kid, you'd want me fighting this hard. And uh, we're, we're trying to push forward with um, syringe sales out of pharmacies. There's kind of been some nebulous legislation around that. We want to be very clear and supportive. We need pharmacy uh, uh, pharmacists selling syringes to help us in HIV and hep C prevention efforts, not only in Denver, but especially in our rural areas. Um, and, you know, continued expansion of treatment. And what does MAT look like for stimulant use? I mean, that's, that's definitely been an issue for us recently, and we want to have that, um, those conversations. And you know, continue to push forward as the largest syringe access provider in the state of Colorado. I think from the medical side, it's it's movement, ongoing movement in the direction of integrated care. So if you're in primary care, for example, that you work as part of an integrated team with, uh, with people with different um, areas of expertise, it's the ongoing appreciation of social determinants of health. It really is ultimately about stigma. It's about welcoming substance use disorders into the pantheon of other regular medical diseases and not treating them the least bit differently than you would any other. And then it really is about sort of that recognition, that real world recognition. We get out of our ivory towers and we realize that people live in uh, the real world and that harm reduction approach also means saying, acknowledging that, yeah, maybe the best they're going to do is they're going to keep using drugs, but they're going to use them more safely. And that we have a role in medicine instead of just saying, well, you're still using drugs. I don't want to hear about that. It, that we have a role in actually helping people, encouraging people to be safer and then rewarding them, encouraging them and praising them when they do take steps to actually make their lives better. Even if it's only incremental, even if we want to see more, it may be the best that they can do. And we, we are enlightened enough to check our own egos and uh, congratulate patients when they take those small steps. I appreciate you saying that too, because what I think I hear a lot of healthcare providers say, you know what you should do? Nobody, nobody likes that. I don't like it when volunteers say that to me. I don't like that when people come in on me on that. Um, you say that to me uh, with some regularity. Well, you know what you should do, Josh Bloom? <laughs> Shit you should together. probably start I, listening if she keeps telling you to do that. Thank you, Nick I, I and like Nick's wife. <laughs> That's right. But, I'm, you know, like, you, nobody knows you more than you know yourself. So how can I support you for a healthier and safer you today? And then we all get to win. We all get to feel successful. You know, the, you know what you should do is our parole and probation. You know, they have to check these boxes and, and even they're struggling right now, too. So, so we, like I said, we do a lot of that technical assistance. And, yes, Cops are our probably unlikeliest or really likeliest ally, but also neighborhood associations, businesses, churches. Churches are really struggling right now because they don't know if they should be locking their doors Monday through Friday when the church secretary is there mm -hmm. because they're afraid that people are going to come in and use their bathrooms because these are one of the last unlocked bathrooms in town. So now the faith communities are really starting to support harm reduction and supervised use sites in particular in mm -hmm. Denver uh, because they're really struggling and want to do something very values-based. Mm -hmm. So... Who else do you need to support this before you say, I'm in? A lot to be proud of, both for in both of your areas of work and together. Uh, Josh Bloom, Lisa Ravel, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Many frontiers to tackle from here. Thank you for your time. Any other final comments from you? Well, I think in, in medicine, we get used to being the experts. We get used to being on our pedestal and telling people what they need to do to be healthy. And we expect them to follow our advice. And so when people don't follow our advice, we, you know, it, it becomes very difficult not to feel like you want to punish someone for that or that they deserve some part of their consequences related to that. And so um, it's a constant battle for me in my addiction practice to check my own ego mm -hmm. and to say, uh, this person is, um, is struggling. Also, their goals may not be my goals. And I have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable with the progress that they've made. Um, but I particularly have to say, look, m my impulse to punish that person for not doing what I told them to do uh, has no place in a therapeutic relationship, ultimately. And, and in, in medicine, we have a lot of ego. It's a lot of ego checking, but on a really conscious and difficult level. I mean, I'm, I'm literally having to bite my tongue at times mm -hmm. to prevent myself from going into maybe a parent-child kind of relationship with a patient where that's that's not serving anyone every time my folks get out of the hospital that they come back to the exchange and say oh i was in the hospital my very first question is were they nice to you nine times out of ten they weren't and so then i'm kind of feel obligated to say well i'm really sorry to hear about that mm -hmm. maybe we should try another hospital next time that's a problem that's a problem when i'm eating it for healthcare providers mm -hmm. because i get lumped into that because I'm not a healthcare provider, 
but I'm pushing forward with your health and I care about your health and you care about your health and we're caring about your health and people that are supposed to care about your health too in these institutions are the enemies. And I think we can all do better, but when I'm simply, were they nice to you? And they say, no, I'm apologizing. Josh, do you think that comes from a, uh, a place of, it feels hurtful sometimes as a, as a physician to feel like somebody you could, you could imagine it feels like they're just ignoring you or they're just constantly not responding to the treatment like you'd want or refusing your treatment. And I don't know if that's, where do you think that that comes from? That kind of approach to, yeah, I'm I'm trying to think now that's powerful to hear you say that. And, and I would never want any patient in any, with any condition, medical, physical, spiritual, (laughs) you know, mental to feel that way. I don't think any of us get into medicine to make people feel that way. Why do you think that that happens? Why do you think we get to that outcome? Well, I I think in medicine, we're trained to get results, right? And and one thing is, as I'm sure you know, I get judged on the hemoglobin A1C levels of my patients in, in primary care. Well, I might be telling them all the best information and they may be ignoring it. I may be even doing a good job of trying to motivate them, but their hemoglobin A1Cs may be 9.5. So in medicine, we we do judge ourselves on the results of mm-hmm. our patients. So it's ingrained. It doesn't matter if the patient wanted to do what you asked them to do, the expectations that you're going to get them to do that. So I, I think it's, it's, really, um, uh, it's really cultural in sure. medicine that we... We get them to change their behavior, and we so it win. feels we win. Yeah, we win. Um, it's really hard, and I'm not saying that when you when you meet someone where they are, that you just it's so loosey goosey and you set no expectations. I mean, to to me, the critical thing is the radical approach is that you treat you know whether they're people who are incarcerated or people who use drugs. You the radical approach is you treat everyone like a human being who deserves respect. But that can also mean setting some real expectations, or if they set some goals from themselves, holding them to those goals. And and you can voice disappointment when they don't make them. It's it's okay. It's okay when Lisa has folks who are um, on the street making a racket and not doing what she's asked them to do to participate in harm reduction. She doesn't say, well, you had a bad parent. I'm sorry. It's okay. You come back. If the, if she needs an expectation of behavior, she has to set that expectation. Mm-hmm. And that's okay to set limits on people. It's, it's simply that you still have to treat them as human beings and you have to divorce. You have to check your own need for their behavior change and put it back on them. It's, it is ultimately their disease. It's not your disease. And that's where that motivational interviewing approach comes in, where right. it's what are your goals, not what are simply my goals for you. But right. I do think culturally we have some, you know, some reckoning in medicine. And just because you're a harm reductionist doesn't mean you're a chump. Nobody wants to feel chumped, mm-hmm. you know. But we can talk about what fairness looks like and we can talk about how you're going to rise to the occasion. And I know you can and you're a leader and other people are paying attention to you. And I believe in you and I know you can do this. And almost always people rise to the occasion. And like you said, setting expectations about these are our principles. We stand for safety. We stand for health. We stand for respect and treatment of each other as human beings. We meet each other where we are. And then every case is different and you try and meet them where they are. How do success stories get back into the community. You know, you mentioned someone earlier about uh, one of your one of your patients, one of your clients is now on methadone and housing and is thriving, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. How does that story get back to his cohort? Is it formally, informally? How do they learn that there is hope and they can get to a place where a lot of them want to be? How does that get back to them? Well, they, people who use drugs knows the world wants an abstinent. And for one reason or another, it's not going to happen today. So for some people... They, you know, they go on, they are incarcerated, they pass away, they go on and they flourish. And I don't hear about that. Mm-hmm. We also, while we, you know, celebrate successes, we also need to make it too so that we're, you don't think we're really wrapped up in your life of recovery, so wrapped up that in case you relapse, that we wouldn't be there for Give you up too. On you. Mm-hmm. So we are, if you're pumped, we're pumped, right? But we're not going to make a big deal to other people about that too, because we want people to feel safe in our space, uh, whether or not they're using. So, you know, it, it's not this big freak flag kind of waving thing, Mm. but more as a community that you, you have, you have stuff to offer as someone who's currently injecting today. You're the expert. What ticks me off a lot of times in, um, like local media stories or, um, or the larger community is only when people are living life recovery, are Mm. they valued? 
Is their story valued? Mm -hmm. But somebody was holding their hand and walking them through it when they were using and nobody was paying attention to them. Mm -hmm. And so there has to be a place for that too of people who are living today and giving back today. And so half of my staff are current and former injectors. Five of the eight of us are currently or formerly homeless. It's important that we reflect the community in which we serve. And at some point, 100% of my staff will be active users. Mm -hmm. I think reflecting the community that you serve is a is an important principle that we struggle with in medicine too, right? Like you said, there are things, there are ways of life, there are people and situations that are very foreign, very difficult to understand at times. People make decisions that are difficult to understand and that concept of being comfortable, being uncomfortable and un and trying to genuinely empathize with patients that we see in the, in the clinic or inpatient um, and trying to conduct an, a genuine process of shared decision-making that incorporates where they're coming from is something that, that's a struggle that involved. I mean, I can speak personally. That's something that requires a lot of mindfulness and intentionality on my part to be able to, to take a step back, to not have that visceral understandable reaction of punishment of wanting to punish or jettison them and have nothing to do with them, which frankly is kind of easy in the emergency department, right? Because you just hit the discharge button. And you're under such time pressures in the emergency department as well. And, you know, I think it takes a change, a shift in mindset for us and just kind of redefining what success looks like, mm -hmm. right? I think that that's kind of a theme that I'm kind of hearing over the course of our discussion today is, is how do we define success? And it's a dynamic, step-by-step, -step, incremental, fits and starts kind of way of defining that. Sometimes I just think even if you're not sure how best to respond or you're really trying to check your own ego, the best thing you can do is just shut up and listen. Um, and I know that's hard in the emergency department when you have a limited amount of time. But when you hear someone tell a story, particularly a story that is uh, of a traumatic event or something like that or something they're going through, and when you listen actively and just respond with, that sounds like that must be really hard, really hard to to tolerate or really hard to deal with. When you bear witness to the pain of your patients, even if you do nothing else therapeutic, mm -hmm. you've just created a connection. You've just heard that person. They've heard, you know, they've felt heard and will come back and see you again. So um, I think at a minimum, that bearing witness is hugely powerful and therapeutic in medicine. And that's genuine medicine, I would say. Agreed. It's just been a pleasure to um, be here and be invited here. And I really appreciate that you chose this as a topic. Um, it doesn't get a lot of airplay and, and Nick I think it's really enlightened of you and and um, the folks here to choose to focus on harm reduction because I think we in medicine just uh, it's a giant blind spot it's a blind spot mm -hmm. join us <laughs> this is where the glory is people that's right we look forward to seeing seeing more clearly <laughs> thank you to both of you thank you Truth thanks for having thank us we are on a quest to provide the world with free medical education Please help us out by rating us on iTunes, following us on social media, and subscribing to our newsletter at emergencymedicalminute.com.